Scripture this morning is from Matthew 21, 18 and 19, and also 33 through 44. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's word. So good morning again. Um, we continue this morning in a series we've been doing this fall uh, on the parables of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus is trying to illustrate for us, describe for us, expand into our imagination what he means when he talks about the kingdom, because the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and so we're confronting some, some of the ways that we've thought about the gospel maybe in the past. Dallas Willard uh, who is now deceased, used to say that the usual gospel that you hear uh, in church, ironically, is a standing invitation to omit God from our day-to-day -day life. And I can say to you, the gospel, as I heard it growing up in church, for the most part, was about going to heaven when you die. That was the main message. But the gospel, in Matthew's telling anyway, is the gospel of the kingdom. It is about heaven coming to earth, about the power and the love and the grace of God coming to bear upon the time and the places where we live now. The kingdom is at hand, Jesus said at the beginning of the gospel. He meant that the power and the love of God for change are here. They're, it's right here. It's in our midst. The life of heaven is not something we have to wait until death to experience. We can enter into it now, and so he taught us to pray just that. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that on earth part of that prayer, every time I pray it, I have to acknowledge that it begins with me. That the gospel is spiritual dynamite for change in me. 
But the good news is, is that as that change begins to happen in me, it's a change that begins to happen through me and into the whole earth. Now, I use the word change. The Bible's word is the word fruit. And these two scenes, the fig tree there in verses 18 and 19, and then the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, whichever way your Bible, um, the heading in your Bible goes on that, in verses 33 and following, are connected by the word fruit. Did you notice how many times the word came up as we read just a minute ago? It's the theme of both of these scenes, which is why I put them together for the sermon. And the lesson is this. It's very simple. God expects fruit. God demands fruit. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 15, which is another important passage you probably want to refer to at some point as you hopefully meditate on this uh, later in the week. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Those are the only two options. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. By this, my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Now, that's not the only place where Jesus teaches this. In Matthew 7, earlier in this gospel, he says, a healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. And so there are a couple of lessons, I think, for us here. And the first is that the spiritual question being asked of our culture is not, is it true? That's not what people are asking of Christianity anymore because we don't really even believe in truth. The question being asked is, does it work? And the answer is that Christianity, at least genuine Christianity, does work. A vital spiritual connection to Jesus, like the vine and the branches there in John 15, produces fruit, which is this organic change through a new inner dynamic in your life, not a mechanical compliance through external force. The second thing that we see here is, is that by the fruit that we bear, we prove to be his disciples, or we can be recognized. You recognize the truth of someone's spiritual state by the fruit of their life. And then thirdly, we're, we're told here that the glory of God is at stake in this, and therefore, and God loves his glory more than anything else, and therefore, he is committed to making you and I fruitful. He's willing to go to great lengths to make us fruitful. He indeed has gone to great lengths to do so, but here's the thing, fruitful doesn't mean happy. Not in the way that we superficially think about happiness anyway. God's goal for you and I is our holiness, not our happiness, which is the only way to really be happy. And so we're just going to wrestle with that. The, the, the demand of this text on our lives is that we bear fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit in keeping with the movement of the kingdom of heaven that is now in the earth. And we're going to do it by just doing two things. It's very simple. You do actually get a shorter sermon this week, even though I threatened that last week and didn't, didn't actually pull it out. But I think we will this week. We're going to see first the fruit, and then we're going to see the root of what, of what is really being told here. And the questions we have to ponder is this. Are we fruitful? Am I fruitful? That's what I want you really wrestling with as we go through this text, because it's what the text is meant to lead us to. And then secondly, as you wrestle with that, we have to wrestle with the implication of, well, in this matter of fruitfulness, where does true spiritual fruitfulness come from? Uh, what is the change that has to take place in the inner parts of my life to, to experience uh, and begin to um, bear the kind of fruit that, that God demands of me as I see it here in this text? Okay, so are we fruitful, and where does the fruit come from? The fruit and the root. Let's look together, beginning with just the fruit. Are we fruitful? 
That's the question that these two scenes pose. Now let's zoom out for a minute in Matthew chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, this will be helpful to you to kind of look at some of the context surrounding, <clears throat> excuse me, these two scenes. Matthew 21 begins with Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And immediately what is probably uh, called in the heading in your Bible, his cleansing of the temple, where he confronts the religious authorities and overturned the tables of the money changers. This uh, brought the mounting tension here in the gospel between Jesus and these religious leaders to a head. So much so that by the end of chapter 21, they realized that the parables he was telling, the two brothers, which we looked at last week in the wicked tenants, and even the one next week in chapter 22, it says in verse 46 that they realized he was talking about them. They had a you are the man moment. And they realized, you know, he's talking about us in this. And so, and they get really upset about it. They begin to plot and uh, together to arrest and to kill him. And so we, we learn from all of that that the tenants in the parable that Jesus is talking about here are the nation of Israel, specifically the religious leaders. We know this because of the editorial comment there in verses, verse 46. We also know it because there's precedent in the Old Testament scriptures for this interpretation. In Isaiah 5, for example, we read a few minutes ago where uh, it's the same thing. Uh, the prophet refers to Israel as God's vineyard. And it says God's dealing with his people was like a man who planted a vineyard. He dug it and he cleared the stones and he planted vines and he put a watchtower in the middle and so forth and walls around it to keep it safe. I mean, in other words, God had done all of this work uh, with Israel. He had done all of these amazing things to take care of them and put them in a place where they could become the people that he wanted them to be. And uh, so this person is doing this in the vineyard and he did everything he could to make sure the vineyard had everything that it needed, and he expected it to produce grapes, but there in Isaiah 5, verse 2, what happens is instead it yields wild grapes, which displeased the Lord. His people did not produce the fruit that he expected after all that he had done for them, and so it goes on to say uh, that in an act of judgment that the Lord would come against his people, he would break down the walls, he would stop taking care of the vineyard, he would stop pruning the bushes and hoeing the ground, and briars and thorns would grow up as a result. And so it's a prophecy of judgment there in Isaiah 5. Despite all the Lord did for his people, they did not bear fruit. And this is the problem here in Matthew 21 as well. It's an echo of Isaiah chapter 5. So let's take the fig tree first. In, in both Matthew and Mark, the fig tree is connected with the cleansing of the temple because it is a parable. The two are meant to explain one another. As Jesus was going out to Jerusalem in the morning, he was hungry. He saw a fig tree. So he turned aside for breakfast, but there, there was no fruit. There were only leaves. Now notice that. Notice those details there in those two verses. Those, that's the, the important thing, that little piece of information right there. Because the fig trees in this part of the world, uh, on those trees, the fruit always came first and then the leaves. So if there were leaves, there should have been fruit. Which is why Jesus gets so upset. He curses the tree because it, sh it has a show of being healthy, but there's actually no fruit. There's all this, there's, there's leafage, but there's no real fruit. There should have been fruit. And so he curses the tree, and then he goes on up to the temple and begins to turn over tables. Now, what's going on? You know, is Jesus, is he hangry? I mean, did he not get the breakfast he wanted? You know, and, and it's, he's just like reacting? No. No, there's something very specific happening here. The fig tree is a parable for the state of the Jewish religion. When Jesus went into the temple, he saw the same thing he saw on the road on the way up to the temple. He saw a tree with lots of leaves, but no fruit. 
lots of religion, lots of, lots of activity, but no love, no justice, no righteousness. And so he did to the temple what he did to the tree. For the same reason, because there was no fruit on either. Now, it's the same in the parable that goes on later in the chapter. The master planted a vineyard. It's all the same language from Isaiah 5, almost exactly the same language. And when the season for fruit came, he demanded the fruit. But there was no fruit. And so we are left to ponder as we wrestle with this text, is there fruit in my life? It doesn't matter who you are. It really doesn't matter whether you believe or not, God has made a huge investment in you. He's done so many things. He's been like this, the, the owner of this vineyard who, who hoed, hoed the ground and who put the fence up to protect the vineyard and who did all of these kinds of things. God's made a huge investment in you. And the way this vineyard owner did all of that is the way that God has worked in your life because he wants fruit. And so the first question we ask is, is there fruit? But, of course, in the asking of that question, we realize there's another question we have to ask, and that is, well, if, if, if the Lord is that interested in fruit, what is the fruit that he desires? And it says in verse 43 that the kingdom has certain fruits. He, just, he describes there are people producing the kingdom's fruits. Well, what are they? Well, unfortunately, it's not explicit in the text. <clears throat> but we can infer generally that what's missing in the religion of these Jews is a genuine heartfelt love for God and for others. In the way they're portrayed here, particularly in the parable, uh, Jesus seems to indicate that there's a deep enmity and even a resentment toward the owner of the vineyard. There, there's no fondness, there's no loyalty, there's no love. And from the scene in the temple, we know that Jesus condemns their religion as being full of busyness and activity and hypocrisy, but absence of any real worship or prayer. So there's no desire or, or, or true wanting for intimacy with God. In these people, it's just kind of a rote mechanical thing. And we know that the first and greatest commandment in the scriptures is to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And this is where they have failed. They have all this stuff going on, but there's no real love for the Lord in any of it. They're like the tenants. There's resentment instead. But the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. And they failed here, too. And so the fruit that, that the Lord is after in every single one of our lives is the freedom and the humility and the ability to live in a particular order. And the order is this, God, then you, then me. God first, you second, me last. Which is not the natural order of the way any of us lives. You with me? Nobody lives that way except those people who've had an experience of grace. But the fruit that the Spirit is bearing in us is exactly that. God, I'm going to live for him first, and then you next, and then me last. So if that's the fruit that he's after, well, then the, the last question, I think, that we, have to, that we have to answer is, well, that, you know, I'm not sure if that's true of me or not, or it's true of me to some degree, and we're meant to be shocked. There's a shock to the system that's being introduced here because we see uh, how does God respond to fruitlessness? Verse 40, it's posed to us in the text like this. What will he do to those tenants? And the first thing to notice there is notice the master's patience and generosity. He sends the first group of servants. The tenants mistreat them. They even kill some of them. 
And it's amazing that the master doesn't retaliate. He would have been expected to do so by uh, the culture. It would have been his right. It would have been the, the normal way of doing, doing things. Instead, he sends more servants. The tenants do the same thing to those servants. Now, at this point, he probably should amass his, his army, right, his fighting men, and go and just wipe this place out. But no, he doesn't. This time, he sends his son. I mean, it's really incredible what happens here. We're going to come back to it in just a few minutes, but we have to get this right because of what I'm about to talk about in just, just one minute. If we don't understand this, then we'll misunderstand what I'm about to say, and, and you, have to, you have to have both of them loaded up in your mind. But here's what I want you to see. What we learn first from the parable is that God's primary response to the sin and rebellion of mankind is patience and generosity and love, ultimately in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ to die for sacrifice as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. God's primary response to our sin and rebellion is patience and generosity and love, ultimately in giving his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Isn't that great news? Anybody excited? Are you sure? Okay. I mean, that's something we should be really excited about because it's so, it, it, it really is so out of place. It shouldn't happen that way, and yet it's exactly what happens. But having said that, be excited, but it's about to get serious now, okay? I want you to, I want you to be excited first before we dealt with the serious part. And the serious part is this, is having said all of that about God's kindness and patience and generosity, the clear teaching of this text is that where God finds a lack of fruit among his people, the response is quite clear. Verse 43, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus was rejecting the nation of Israel and their leaders specifically in saying that God's movement in the world would no longer be a Jewish, Jewish movement because the people had not produced the fruit that God expected. It would become a Gentile movement instead because they would bear fruit. God's saying, I'm going to find people who will bear fruit. And if it's not you, it'll be somebody else. And so this series of three parables here in Matthew 21 and 22 make this point. He is turning away from the Jewish nation, which, of course, it doesn't happen fully until uh, the book of Acts where that transition takes place. But this is an act of judgment. Isaiah 5, again, Israel's the vineyard. There's no fruit. Here's what the Lord says. He says, now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. Jesus says the same thing in John 15. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and it withers. And then it's gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. Again, it's, the, it's this image of judgment. And so what we're learning here is this, is that if you do not bear fruit, the truth is that you're not a branch of the vine. And God will remove you to make room for the fruitful branches to flourish because he wants fruit. That's what happened to the Jews, okay? It can happen to us too. If you, need, if you need evidence of that, go home this afternoon and read in Revelation chapters two and three. There are seven churches written uh, to the most prominent churches in, in, the, in the part of Asia that John was writing to there in Revelation two and three. The seven most prominent churches in the first century of the Christian movement not a single one of them still exists. In fact, those are some of the most unchristian places on the face of the planet. 
Why? Well, he says to one of those churches, he says, do the works that you did at first or I will remove your lampstand. And they did not. And he did. And he'll do it again. Now, let me say one more thing before we move on. And we should feel, I, I want us to feel the weight of that, okay? I, I do. I, I, it, that, the weight, this is a weighty text and it should come and, and weigh upon our hearts. But let me say one more thing before we move on from John 15 again. Jesus says this in John 15 too. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Here are the two, here are the two options for everybody in the room. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that you might bear more fruit. And so the only way to bear fruit is to be pruned, and that's painful. Think about that image. When you prune a bush, you whack it to pieces, and, and when you're done, it looks like you've killed it. I never do a good job with my bushes because I'm afraid to prune them all the way to where they need to be pruned because they look terrible when you're finished with them, right? And I always wonder, it's probably not going to come back. I've killed it. I mean, it really looks like you've killed it, and in reality, you have to kill it in order for it to really grow back, and here's the lesson. God is so committed to you bearing fruit that he will take a knife to you from time to time. He will cut away stuff that you think you need, but it's really the stuff that's holding you back, and it'll be painful, and it'll feel like he's killing you, and you'll be tempted to think, what are you doing? But the teaching is this, that God will never take anything out of your life that would not have been a loss to keep, and everything he cuts away is a gain to lose. Every branch goes under the knife. Every branch, every single one of us is going to go under the knife at some point. If you're connected to Jesus by faith, then the knife will cut you back for the sake of more fruitfulness. But if you're not connected to him, the knife will cut you off. And so the trick is, how do you get connected to him in a way so that when the knife comes, you don't get cut off, you just get cut back, and in the end, it means more fruit. How's that happen? Well, there's a work that has to take place in the subterranean parts of your life, in the roots. Because if you got good roots, it doesn't matter, right? You can cut, the, you can cut it back, it can look dead, but if the roots are good, the life will come back. And so we gotta go a little deeper to the root. What is the root of Israel's problem here? What do we see in the roots? And if we were to try to use one word to describe the attitude of the religious leaders towards Jesus, not only here, but in all of the gospels, it would be hostility. The tenants in the parable were hostile to the owner of the vineyard. So they violently attacked his servants when he sent them. They, they even relished the chance to kill his son when the son showed up. It's quite striking. I mean, it's a really ugly picture of, of these people and of us because they're representative of us. But what we learn is that sin is more than just breaking the rules. It's an attitude. It's a deep resentment towards the Christ claims, or excuse me, the crown claims of Christ over our lives. Sin is not just not obeying the rules. Sin is hating the one who made the rules. Hating the idea that there is one who can make rules. The mind is hostile to God, Paul says in Romans 8, 7, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so this hostility is what has to be rooted out in your life before you can bear fruit. It's not enough to just start doing the right things. You can do the right things and still hate God. Can I say that again? You can do the right things and, and still hate God. In fact, you can do the right things because you hate God. As a way of controlling him, putting him in your debt, taking control of your life. And so the fruit of the kingdom isn't just obedience. The fruit of the kingdom, the people that, that he's looking for here are people that have hearts that love obedience because they love the one they're obeying. And so where does the hostility come from? Well, it's particularly helpful, the parable is, in answering that question. And the answer is that they were tenants. But notice there, they were tenants that that wanted to be the owner. Verse 38, they say, 
when the sun shows up, they say, ah, here's the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we can have his inheritance for ourselves. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They didn't want to work for the master. They wanted to call the shots. They were tenants who wanted to be the master. So underneath all of our inhumanity to each other and all of our complaining and our self-pity and all of the ways things go wrong in our lives, underneath it all is anger and resentment at the idea that we're not in charge of our lives, that we're not in control, that we resent the idea that someone else is calling the shots. I mean, if you need evidence, just consider this. The one time in the history of the world when God made himself physically vulnerable to us, we jumped him, we beat him, we arrested him, we tried him, we killed him. As an expression of our truest hearts towards our maker, we live a given life. But we want to believe we're masters of our own fate. And that internal struggle that every one of us goes through often boils over into resentment and anger. And here's the thing. Often it boils over in hostility. It's toward God, but we mistake it. And what happens is this hostility we feel toward God, we allow it to become hostility towards his messengers. Don't kill the messenger, you've heard, right, people say? And the messengers in the story are the, are the people the master sends on his behalf. And the messengers in your life are the people God sends to shatter your illusions of independence and self-sufficiency. Don't kill the messenger. Don't kill the coach who sits your kid on the bench and won't give him the playing time you think he deserves. You're not in control. Don't kill the teacher who gives the grade that obviously your, your child deserved better. Don't kill... You know, the husband who just stands in the way of you getting all the idols of your heart that you think you need. Children, don't, don't resent the parents who tell you no because they're loving you. See, we take the messengers and we, we have all this hostility towards the people in our lives that God sends to remind us that we're not in control. And it's really that we're just angry at him that he is in control and we're not. That's the root there that has to be pulled up if you're ever going to bear fruit, good fruit. And if you're going to be able to bear with being cut back for the sake of more fruit, because if not, if that's not in there, if that, if that resentment doesn't die in you, then you'll resent him your whole life. And when he comes with the knife, guess what? It'll just be a cause for you to resent him even more. So how do you get rid of this hostility? That's where we need to finish. And the answer the text gives at the end of the parable is that you have to see the stone rejected that becomes the cornerstone. Verses 42 43 and 44. Jesus' point in those verses is that the Jews have missed it. And the reason they've missed it is their religion. Their religion was the problem. It's a strange thing to say, but the, their religion wasn't a help to them. Their religion didn't get, help get rid of their natural resentment towards God. It actually was the, the cause for their resentment. They knew his law. They worshiped in his temple, but they missed his heart because they thought the kingdom was something that you earned because that's what religion says. Religion says you do something and God repays you, but you got to earn it. And what happens is, is religion actually creates resentment because you do to get stuff from God. That's religion. I do. I get stuff from him, but you know as well as I do that it never goes the way you think that it should. You always end up with the short end of the, of the stick. And so in these verses, Jesus is explaining all of their wrong assumptions, and he's reminding them that the kingdom is a gift, it's grace. The parable is his autobiography. The servants are the prophets sent by God before him to the people of Israel throughout their history, who they mostly killed and and abused and beat. He is the son that comes 
and is himself killed. The father is the owner of the vineyard who is chosen instead of anger to make himself vulnerable out of love in the hope that we would see his incredible generosity and kindness and nobility and be awed by it. And in awe of him and in awe of his love and in awe of his grace and awe of all of that kindness and nobility and generosity towards us, we would lay down our hostility and rebellion and trust his heart. And that's what the word respect in verse 37 means. That's the, that's the most important word. Circle it in your Bible. They will respect my son. He says, and it, that's the key. And it refer, it's a weird, it's a very hard word to translate. The commentators are not, you know, they, they really struggle over this. But it refers to the turning of a heavenly body. In other words, what he's saying here is the master's saying, nothing's worked to this point. But when they see my son, surely when they see that I give my son into their hands, it'll turn their hearts around. And they'll come to see how desperately wrong about me they've been. When they see my love, they'll see they were wrong, that I, and, and they'll come and they'll just be awed by my kindness and my generosity towards them, and maybe that will change their hearts. That's what he's saying. True story uh, confirmed by American intelligence officers. In the, in the 80s, King Hussein of Jordan was informed by his secret police that a group of 75 Jordanian officers were at that very moment uh, meeting in nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of his kingdom. And the security officers were requesting permission to raid the barracks and arrest the conspirators. But instead, the king requested a helicopter, and he flew to where the meeting was being held. And as he left the helicopter on the roof there, he told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away immediately without me. Unarmed, he walked down two flights of stairs and entered the very room where the meeting was going on. And he confronted these men and spoke to those conspiring to overthrow him and kill him. He spoke to them. He said, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you're meeting here to plan the overthrow of my government. If you do this, it will mean civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need for that. Here I am. Kill me right now and proceed. That way, only one man will die. And as the story goes, after a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and pledge their loyalty to him for life because they realized, we, we've been wrong about this man. This is his true heart. They, were, they, they came to respect him. They came to be in awe of his willingness to sacrifice, his, his unbelievable generosity and love. Now, listen, Disney knows that it takes an act of true love to thaw a frozen heart. And the good news is, is that that story is our story. Jesus Christ is the stone rejected that becomes the cornerstone. It's a reference there to his death, but also to his resurrection. So the cornerstone on which the kingdom is built is the vulnerable, generous, self-sacrificing love of God toward us in Christ. In his rejection and death for our sins and also in his vindication and resurrection to give us new life. That is our gospel. And look at, verse, uh, look at verse 42. It says, it is the Lord's doing. Amen? It is the Lord's doing. But here's my question to you. Look at that verse. Is it marvelous in your eyes? Do you see what they say? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, quoting the psalmist in Psalm 118 there. But I have a question for all of us. Is it marvelous? 
to you? Do you look upon what God has done for you in Jesus and just say, wow, I, I just, I can't get over it. I can't believe it. If so, then you will have no problem trusting God's heart. And if you trust God's heart, then you won't have to be in control. You won't have to be the owner. You can just be a tenant. You can live a given life. However it comes, because you know it's given by the loving heart of your Father in heaven, the good and the bad. And that's the key to bearing fruit. See, in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the beginning of the foundation upon which the whole building was built. And so it was set in place first, and then all of the other stones were chiseled to fit in specification with it. So here's the question. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Is it your spiritual resume like these people? Is it your work success or the happiness of your kids? If so, what we're told here is that all of that will eventually crumble. And when it crumbles around you, it will only deepen the resentment you feel towards God and you will remain fruitless. Or you can build your life upon the cornerstone, the risen Jesus. And the cornerstone is the finished work of Christ for you. And if you build your life upon him, and if you build your life upon his love shown to you in his death and resurrection, then everywhere you go, in everything you do, with everyone you meet, everything you put your hands to, you'll be bearing fruit because your heart will have been changed and you'll be coming from true love for God and for others. And everything a heart like that does bears fruit. That is the, that is the people who bear the fruit of the kingdom. And so the question that we just have a few minutes to, to, to wonder about together this morning is, is the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for you marvelous in your eyes? Is his grace amazing? Can we think about that for a minute? Let's pray as we do. Would you pray with me? So, Father... We have just a few moments here at the end of the service together, and so we would say uh, we are so prone, I am, let me speak for myself, I am so prone to rush from one thing to the next, as I said in the first service, to just rush from uh, a rehearsal dinner on Friday to a wedding on Saturday night to an early service on Sunday to a second service on Sunday and never just stop long enough to ponder the reality of the truth of the gospel and so is it marvelous in my eyes? Too often it's not. Too often I'm just too busy to even consider such things. And I, I confess that to you. And, I, and, I, and I, I lay before you the truth that um, I need so desperately for you to come and change my heart. I need eyes to see so that when I see, I would start to wonder and marvel and be in awe. I need a heart that's unthought by a love so great that, that really there's just no comprehension. It's not something that makes sense. It's just something that's to be marveled at. That is, that is the way that you have made yourself known to us. And so I just pray we take a minute this morning in the quiet. Most of us are gonna rush out of here and get something to something else, but right now in this moment, us to marvel. Come and work in that way right now in us. And then out of that sense of wonder and amazement and joy 
and reverence and respect for all that you've done for us, would you give us the grace to sincerely sing the words of the song we're going to sing? Take my life, take my feet, take my hands, take my lips, take every part of me, consecrate it to yourself, bear fruit in me so that your name might be glorified because the great joy and desire of my heart now is that you be known and that the great love with which you love me be known in all the world. Make us people like that, we pray, as we sit quietly before you. And as we stand and sing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Really is a sweet song, a really heartfelt song, but please listen, don't sing those words. Don't make those promises because you think, gosh, if I could just get my act together and do this, then maybe God would love me. Okay, that's not the way this works. We don't sing and consecrate ourselves to him in the hopes that he'll love us. We sing and we consecrate ourselves to him because he loves us. We don't go from this place to bear fruit thinking, if I can bear some fruit, then maybe God will pay attention to me and and like me. No, we go bearing fruit knowing we go already loved. Right? That's what these words mean. So, so remember these words of benediction. That this is true. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, he has already turned his face towards you. Uh, and, but in, in experiencing the light of your father's face, that's, that is like the sunshine that shines down upon the plant that causes the plant to bloom and blossom and bear fruit. So receive these words. Then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace to bear fruit.